Hello everyone. Welcome back to Water Boat Woman. We're now in episode 4. This week I'll be reading Wanderlust by Rebecca Solnit. It's a book about the history of walking, and in light of the protests that are happening all over the world right now, I've chosen to read a part which talks about how you can choose to walk as a revolutionary act. I learned so much from reading this book about how walking can be used to help writers frame and understand the pace of their stories. and that the repetitive motion of putting one foot in front of the other can induce such an uninhibited and inspired state of mind. I'd like to thank Sam Simmons, a poet and writer from Herne Bay, for introducing me to this book. Now let's begin. Citizens of the streets. Parties, processions and revolutions. I turned all the way around to see that it was his wings that had made the angel just behind me look so odd out of the corner of my eye. At least he was dressed as an angel. And various space aliens, tarts, disco kings and two-legged beasts were all streaming down the street in the same direction, toward Castro Street, as they do every Halloween. The night before, I had taken my bike down to the foot of Market Street to ride in critical mass. The group ride that is both a protest of the lack of safe space for bicyclists and a festive seizure of that space. Several hundred bicyclists riding together filled the streets as they have the last Friday of every month since the event began here in 1992. Cyclists stage critical masses around the world from Geneva to Sydney to Jerusalem to Philadelphia. Some of the more righteous bicyclists had taken to wearing t-shirts that say one less car so a trio of runners accompanied us wearing one less bike shirts and in honor of the impending holiday some of the cyclists had donned masks or costumes halloween in the castro is a similarly hybrid event both celebration and at least in its origins political statement for asserting a queer identity is a bold political statement in itself Asserting such an identity festively subverts the long tradition of sexuality being secret and homosexuality being shameful. And in dreary times, joy itself is insurrectionary, as community is in times of isolation. Nowadays, the Castro's Halloween street party is a magnet for a lot of straight people as well, but everyone seems to operate under the aegis of tolerance, campiness, and shameless staring in this event. that is nothing more than a few thousand people milling along several blocks of shut-down streets. Nothing is sold, no one is in charge, and everyone is both spectacle and spectator. Earlier Halloween night, several hundred people had marched from Castro Street to the Hall of Justice to protest and mourn the murder of a young gay man in Wyoming. A pretty routine demonstration for San Francisco and for the Castro which is both a temple of consumerism and home base for a politically active community. November 2nd, Dia de los Muertos, the Day of the Dead, was celebrated on 24th Street in the Mission District. As always, the Aztec dancers, barefoot, spinning and stamping, clad in loincloths, leg rattles and four-foot long feather plumes led the parade. They were followed by participants who bore altars on long poles, a virgin of Guadalupe atop one and an Aztec god on the other. Behind the altars walked people carrying huge crosses draped in tissue paper, people with faces painted as skulls, people carrying candles, 
perhaps a thousand participants in all. Unlike bigger parades, this one was made up almost entirely of participants, with only a few onlookers from the windows of their homes. Perhaps it is better described as a procession, for a procession is a participant's journey, while a parade is a performance with an audience. Walking together through the streets felt very different than did milling around on Halloween. There was a more tender, melancholic mood about this festival of death, and a delicate but satisfying sense of camaraderie in the air that might have just come from nothing more than sharing the same space and same purpose while moving together in the same direction. It was as though in aligning our bodies we had somehow aligned our hearts. At 25th and Mission, another procession invaded ours, a louder one, chanting against the impending execution of a death row inmate. And though it was annoying to be demonstrated at as though we were the executioners, it was useful to be reminded of the reality of death. The bakeries stayed open late, selling pan de muerto, sweet bread baked into human figures, and the holiday was a fine hybrid of Christian and indigenous Mexican tradition, revised and metamorphosed at the hands of San Francisco's many cultures. Like Halloween, the Day of the Dead is a liminal festival, celebrating the thresholds between life and death, the time in which everything is possible and identity itself is in flux. And these two holidays have become thresholds across which different factions of the city meet and the boundaries between strangers drop. The great German artist, Joseph Beuys, used to recite, as a maxim and manifesto, the phrase, everyone an artist. I used to think it meant that he thought everyone should make art, but now I wonder if he wasn't speaking to a more basic possibility, that everyone could become a participant rather than a member of the audience, that everyone could become a producer rather than a consumer of meaning. The same idea lies behind punk culture's DOI, do-it-yourself credo. This is the highest ideal of democracy, that everyone can participate in making their own life and the life of the community, and the street is democracy's greatest arena, the place where ordinary people can speak, unsegregated by walls, unmediated by those with more power. It's not a coincidence that media and mediate have the same root. Direct political action in real public spaces may be the only way to engage in unmediated communication with strangers, as well as a way to reach media audiences by literally making news. Processions and street parties are among the pleasant manifestations of democracy, and even the most solipsistic and hedonistic expressions keep the populace bold and the avenues open for more overtly political uses. Parades, demonstrations, protests, uprisings and urban revolutions are all about members of the public moving through public space for expressive and political rather than merely practical reasons. In this, they are part of the cultural history of walking. Public marches mingle the language of the pilgrimage, in which one walks to demonstrate one's commitment, with the strikes picket line, in which one can demonstrate the strength of one's group and one's persistence by pacing back and forth, and the festival, in which the boundaries between strangers recede. Walking becomes testifying, Many marches arrive at rally points, but the rallies generally turn participants back into audiences for a few select speakers. I myself have often been deeply moved by walking through the streets en masse, and deeply bored by the events after arrival. 
Most parades and processions are commemorative, and this moving through the space of the city to commemorate other times knits together time and place, memory and possibility, city and citizen, into a vital whole, a ceremonial space in which history can be made. The past becomes the foundation on which the future will be built, and those who honour no past may never make a future. Even the most innocuous parades have an agenda. St. Patrick's Day parades go back more than 200 years in New York, and they demonstrate the religious convictions, ethnic pride and strength of a once marginal community. As to the much more glittering Chinese New Year's Day parades in San Francisco and colossal gay pride parades around the continent, Military parades have always been shows of strength and incitements to tribal pride or citizen intimidation. In Northern Ireland, Orange men have used their marches celebrating past Protestant victories to symbolically invade Catholic neighbourhoods, while Catholics have made the funerals of the slain into massive political processions. On ordinary days, we each walk alone or with a companion or two on the sidewalks and the streets are used for transit or for commerce. On extraordinary days, on the holidays that are anniversaries of historic and religious events, and on the days we make history ourselves, we walk together, and the whole street is for stamping out the meaning of the day. Walking, which can be prayer, sex, communion with the land, or musing, becomes speech in these demonstrations and uprisings, and a lot of history has been written with the feet of citizens walking through their cities. Such walking is a bodily demonstration of political or cultural conviction and one of the most universally available forms of public expression. It could be called marching, in that it is common movement toward a common goal, but the participants have not surrendered their individuality as have the soldiers whose lockstep signifies that they have become interchangeable units under an absolute authority. Instead, they signify the possibility of common ground between people who have not ceased to be different from each other, people who have at last become the public. When bodily movement becomes a form of speech, then the distinctions between words and deeds, between representations and actions begin to blur, and so marches can themselves be liminal, another form of walking into the realm of the representational and symbolic, and sometimes into history. Only citizens familiar with their city as both symbolic and practical territory, able to come together on foot and accustomed to walking about their city, can revolt. Few remember that the right of the people peaceably to assemble is listed in the First Amendment of the US Constitution, along with freedom of the press, of speech and of religion, as critical to a democracy. While the other rights are easily recognised, the elimination of the possibility of such assemblies through urban design, automotive dependence and other factors is hard to trace and seldom framed as a civil rights issue. But when public spaces are eliminated, so ultimately is the public. The individual has ceased to be a citizen capable of experiencing and acting in common with fellow citizens. Citizenship is predicated on the sense of having something in common with strangers just as democracy is built upon trust in strangers, and public space is the space we share with strangers, the unsegregated zone. In these communal events, that abstraction, the public, becomes real and tangible. 
Los Angeles has had tremendous riots. Watts in 1965 and the Rodney King uprising in 1992. But little effective history of protest. It is so diffuse, so centerless, that it possesses neither symbolic space in which to act, nor a pedestrian scale in which to participate as the public, save for a few relict and recreated pedestrian shopping streets. San Francisco, on the other hand, has functioned like the Paris of the West, it was once called, breeding a regular menu of parades, processions, protests, demonstrations, marches, and other public activities in its central spaces. San Francisco, however, is not a capital, as Paris is, so it is not situated to shake the nation and the national government. Paris is the great city of walkers, and it is the great city of revolution. These two facts are often written about as though they are unrelated, but they are vitally linked. Historian Eric Hobsbawm once speculated on the ideal city for riot and insurrection. It should, he concluded, be densely populated and not too large an area. Essentially, it should still be possible to traverse it on foot. In the ideal insurrectionary city, the authorities, the rich, the aristocracy, the government or local administration, will therefore be as intermingled with the central concentration of the poor as possible. All the cities of revolution are old-fashioned cities. Their stone and cement are soaked with meanings, with histories, with memories that make the city a theatre in which every act echoes the past and makes a future, and power is still visible at the centre of things. They are pedestrian cities whose inhabitants are confident in their movements, familiar with the crucial geography. Paris is all these things, and it has had major revolutions and insurrections in 1789, 1830, 1848, 1871 and 1968, and in recent times, myriad protests and strikes. Hobsbawm addresses Haussmann's reshaping of Paris when he writes, Urban reconstruction, however, had another and probably unintended effect on potential rebellions, for the new and wide avenues provided an ideal location for what became an increasingly important aspect of popular movements, the mass demonstration, or rather, procession. The more systematic these rings and cartwheels of boulevards, the more effectively isolated those were from the surrounding inhabited area, the easier it became to turn such assemblies into ritual marches rather than preliminaries to riot. In Paris itself, it seems that the saturation of ceremonial, symbolic and public space makes the people there peculiarly susceptible to revolution. That is to say, the French are a people for whom a parade is an army if it marches like one, for whom the government falls if they believe it has, and this seems to be because they have a capital where the representational and the real are so interfused, and because their imaginations too dwell in public engage with public issues, public dreams. I take my desires for reality because I believe in the reality of my desires, said Graffiti on the Sorbonne in the student-led uprising of May 1968. That uprising captured its most crucial territory, the national imagination, and it was on this territory, as well as in the Latin Quarter and the strike sites around France, that they came within a hair's breadth of toppling Europe's strongest government, the difference between rebellion at Columbia and rebellion at the Sorbonne 
is that life in Manhattan went on as before, while in Paris, every section of society was set on fire in the space of a few days, wrote Mavis Gallant, who was there in the streets of the Latin Quarter. The collective hallucination was that life can change, quite suddenly and for the better. It still strikes me as a noble desire. Everyone knows how the French Revolution began. On July 11th, 1789, Louis XVI dismissed the popular minister Jacques Necker, further stirring up his already turbulent capital. Parisians must have been imagining an armed revolt, for 6,000 of them spontaneously assembled to storm the Invalides and seize the rifles stored there, then went on to conquer the Bastille across the river for more military supplies, with results still celebrated in parades and festivals throughout France every July 14th, Bastille Day. Life did change, suddenly, and in the long run for the better. The liberation of that medieval fortress prison symbolically ended centuries of despotism, but the revolution didn't really begin until the march with the market woman three months later. The revolution's intellectual origins lay in the ideals of liberty and justice, prompted in part by Enlightenment philosophers, such as Thomas Paine, Rousseau and Voltaire. But it also had bodily origins. In the summer of 1788, a devastating hailstorm had wiped out much of the harvest across France, and in 1789 the people felt the effects. Bread rose in price and became scarce, Ordinary people often began standing in line at the bakeries at 4am in the hope of buying a loaf that day, and the poor began to become the hungry. Bodily causes had bodily effects. It was to be a revolution not merely of ideas, but of bodies liberated, starving, marching, dancing, rioting, decapitated, on the stage of Parisian streets and squares. Revolutions are always politics made bodily, Politics when actions become the usual form of speech. Britain and France had had food and tax riots before, but nothing quite like this combination of hunger for food and for ideals. In the heady days after the fall of the Bastille, the market women and poissards, or fishwives, had grown accustomed to marching together, and they must have first felt their common desires and collective strength during the religious processions they went on that season, at least one local was alarmed at the discipline, pageantry and magnitude of the almost daily processions of market women, laundresses, tradesmen and workers of different districts that, during August and September, wound up the Rue Saint-Jacques to the new-built city of Saint-Genevieve, patroness of Paris, for Thanksgiving services. Simon Sharma points out that on the feast day of Saint-Louis, August 25th, the market women of Paris traditionally went to Versailles to present the queen with bouquets. It is as though having learned the form of the procession, they could give it new content. Having marched to pay homage to church and state, they were ready to march to demand terms. On the morning of October 5th, 1789, a girl took a drum to the central markets of Léal, while in the insurrectionary Faubourg Saint-Antoine, a woman compelled a local cleric to ring the church bells in his church. Drum and bells gathered a crowd. The women, now numbering in the thousands, chose a hero of the Bastille to lead them, Stanislas Marie Maillard, 
who found himself constantly preaching moderation to his followers. Though made up mostly of poor working women, fishwives, market women, laundresses, portresses, the crowd included some women of means and a few noted revolutionaries, such as Théran de Méricor, known as Théran the Amazon. Prostitutes and men dressed as women loomed large in contemporary accounts of the march, but this seems to have been because many believed respectable women were incapable of such insurrection. The women insisted on moving straight through the Tuileries, still the gardens of the king, and when a guard pulled his sword on one of the women in the lead, Maillard came to her defence, but she delivered such a blow with her broom to the crossed swords of the men that they were both disarmed. They continued on chanting, Bread and to Versailles! Later that day, the Marquis de Lafayette, hero of the American Revolution, led an army of about 20,000 National Guards after them in equivocal support. By early evening, they were at the National Assembly in Versailles, demanding that this new governing body deal with the food shortage and a few women were taken before the king to make their case. Before midnight, the crowd was at the palace gates, and early in the morning the crowd came inside. It was a gory arrival. After a guardsman shot a young woman, the crowd decapitated two guards and rushed the royal apartments looking for the hated queen, Marie Antoinette. That day, the terrified royal family was forced to return to Paris with a jubilant, exhausted, victorious crowd. At the head of the long procession, Lafayette's, estimated at 60,000, came the royal family in a carriage surrounded by women carrying branches of laurel, followed by the National Guard, escorting wagon loads of wheat and flour. At the rear, writes one historian, marched more women, their decorated branches amidst the gleaning iron of pikes and musket barrels, giving the impression, as one observer thought, of a walking forest. It was still raining, and the roads were ankle-deep in mud. Yet they all seemed content, even cheerful. They shouted to passers-by, Here come the baker, the baker's wife and the baker's little boy. The king in Paris was a very different entity than the king in Versailles. There, the once absolute power of the French monarchy ebbed away, and he became a constitutional monarch, then a prisoner, and within a few years a victim of the guillotine as the revolution spiralled down into factions and bloodbaths. History is often described as though it were made up entirely of negotiations in closed spaces and wars in open ones, of talking and fighting, of politicians and warriors. Earlier events of that revolution, the birth of the National Assembly and the storming of the Bastille, correspond to these versions. Yet the market women had managed to make history as ordinary citizens engaged in ordinary gestures. During the walk of the thousands of women to Versailles, they had overcome the weight of the past in which they had been deferential to all the usual authorities, while the traumas of the future were yet unforeseen. They had one day in which the world was with them. They feared nothing. Armies followed in their wake, and they were not grist for history's mill, but the grinders. Like mass marches everywhere, they displayed a collective power, the power at the very least to withdraw their support, and at the most to revolt violently, 
but they managed to start the revolution largely as marchers. They carried branches as well as muskets, for muskets operate in the realm of the real, but branches in that of the symbolic. There we have it, Wonderlust by Rebecca Solnit. I thoroughly recommend looking into this book and her other works if you haven't already. She has some really interesting articles online too. Thank you to Granta Publishing for giving me permission to read another of their books. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back in two weeks with the last book in this series. More on that soon, but for now, keep fighting for what you believe in.